My name is Dan Ortiz. Among other things, uh, I helped direct the law school Supreme Court litigation clinic, which is a program now in its 11th year, I think. Uh, we've been going fairly strong. So I thought what I'd do, we have half an hour together, is talk about the program just generally uh, for about uh, 10 minutes and spend a little bit of time talking about some of our recent cases, so give you a real feel uh, for what we do, and then just open things up to the floor for 10, 12, maybe 15 minutes uh, so we can answer some of your questions, in particular about the clinic, but also if you have other questions just about Charlottesville or the, the school. I'd be happy uh, to answer them. Uh, before I get started, though, just in case I forget, because uh, sometimes I am a little bit forgetful, uh, if you have any questions about the clinic or the school going forward that I might be able to help with, feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, you can find my email address at, uh, on the webpage, of course, uh, but I'll also tell it to you. It's dro at virginia.edu. Oh my god, the heavens are... Go ahead. All right, better light. Uh, here, should I have worn some makeup or something? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Randy, the, uh, what they're doing is uh, filming this just uh, for, uh, uh, to record it for people who weren't able to get here today. Uh, nothing more than that. So please don't worry about saying anything embarrassing and it uh, being pulled up years from now at your Senate confirmation hearings or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, all right, what, you know, we started the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, as I said, about 11 years ago to provide a capstone experience for people in law school. It's limited to third years, and the idea is your first year, your second year, you learn an awful lot about what the law, legal doctrine is, but you learn about it mostly from books. And you don't actually have all that much opportunity to sort of practice it in a setting where your understanding is really tested. There are some other clinics, and they provide ways of actually uh, you know, practicing and learning through practice about particular areas of law. Uh, but at the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, we try to bring a lot of your overall law experience together. Now, what does that mean? You'll learn things like contracts, torts, criminal law, constitutional law, civil rights law, all that stuff in your first two years. And then in the clinic, we hope to actually, in the context of a real live case that hopefully will go up to the, you know, is ready to go up to the Supreme Court, uh, that you will actually have to research, write, make arguments against some of the best lawyers in the country people who are going to be on the other side and don't want the Supreme Court to take the case, or uh, if the Supreme Court takes the case, want you to lose, 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 lose. Right? And we're very, it's a wonderful opportunity for law students because they say, you are going up against the best lawyers in the country. Uh, we've gone up against the United States Solicitor General's Office, which is called the best law firm uh, in the country informally, uh, about, I'm going to lose count, I think about seven times, and I think we've won f against them five, uh, five of those times, which is a tremendous record, something uh, like that. We also go up against some of the best uh, private law firms in the country, people who have practiced years and years and years and years and years before the Supreme Court. And often we will find that our third-year students are doing the things that fourth or fifth year associates or junior partners in these law firms are doing on the other side. And it's very funny, we will have these little conferences where I will be there with my little team of students uh, and there will be these you know, 60 year old partners 
uh, on the other side with their team of 40 and 50 year old lawyers uh, trying to intimidate and make our you know, students back down. But our record is such that we've gone, we beat them more often than we lose to. So overall, we've got a great record. It's just an unbelievable experience for our students and ones that you can't really find uh, elsewhere uh, in uh, the law school experience. Now, let me tell you about what it really looks like and what the students do. As most of you probably know, there are two stages in just about every uh, case to getting the case decided by the Supreme Court. About 7,000 people a year ask the Supreme Court to hear its cases as are unhappy with what the lower court did with them. Does anyone know about how many cases the Supreme Court actually hears a year? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually closer to 70 uh, than 80. And in fact, after Justice Scalia's death, they started taking even fewer. So now it's sort of embarrassing. Uh, they have basically 72 slots if they just hear two cases in the morning on the days they're supposed to hear cases. And this year, a lot of those slots have gone empty uh, kind of thing. So I don't know the exact numbers, but I imagine this year they're probably around mid-60s or something like that. But historically, for the last like 10 years, it's between 70 and 80, but getting closer uh, to 70. Now that means that the overall success rate of getting cases, the Supreme Court to hear a case, just to hear it, is 1% or slightly under 1%. Our rate as of about two years ago, the last time I checked, was I think 32% or something like that, 31%, it was something there. Uh, some people, outsiders said it was the best rate in the country, except for the Solicitor General's office. It has a better uh, record. But among like private entities and things like that, law firms and stuff, uh, it was quite stellar. If you win at that stage, meaning the Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, great. Then you have to actually sit down and tell the Supreme Court in a second round of briefing why you actually should win it, okay? That the other side's arguments are not so good, yours are great, there's only one way to go, that sort of thing. And then you actually have the argument before the court. You then sit on your hands for a few months and then usually by the end of June, following the Supreme Court issues an opinion and there's a lot of excitement. And you've either won or you've lost. Hopefully, uh, you've won. Now, the students um, basically do everything. They help, in many cases, identify the cases, uh, looking through cases that the lower courts are deciding to decide which ones the Supreme Court might be interested in. Then if we actually get a case, they do the initial research, the initial strategizing, the initial drafting, and that process takes anywhere from uh, two-thirds of a semester to maybe a whole semester. Then we go on to something else, because you have to wait for the other side to submit its papers, and you have to wait for the Supreme Court to decide what it wants to do. All that takes some time. And then if the Supreme Court grants cert, which is what it means to, it accepts the case for oral argument, you start a whole nother round of briefing. Unfortunately, one of the great difficulties of the clinic is trying to make the academic term match the court term. So often what happens is that we'll have one team of students working on the first stage of the case, persuading the court to take it, and then we'll end up having a completely different set of students from the following year work on the second stage of the case, which is telling the court why we should win it. But it's tremendously exciting 
As I say, the students do the initial research, they do the initial drafting, they do the initial strategizing. They will pretend, once we get close to the argument, that they are the, probably right behind me, in fact, that they are judges, justices on the Supreme Court. And they will pepper the person who's going to argue the case with really hard questions. And many students have said that the most thrilling moment in their legal educations has come when one of the justices on the real Supreme Court asked the same question that they came up with during a more, an oral argument. And because the person who's arguing the case has seen or heard that question before, hopefully they're going to be answering it better before the real live Supreme uh, Court. So let me talk for a few minutes, just give you a sample of some of our more recent cases and some of the ones we have now pending before the Supreme Court. Uh, the last two cases we argued before for the Supreme Court, you may, uh, of them you may have heard of one, which is Alonis versus the United States, also known as the Facebook threat case. I don't know if anyone heard about that. Uh, what happened was that our client uh, had had some uh, reversals in his fortune. His life was just going haywire. Uh, and he sort of lashed out uh, at people on the internet and the government prosecuted him for threatening them. Now, as you know from the internet, uh, one of the, it's very hard to like tell whether something, someone's being serious always about something, what their attitude is, because there aren't a lot of signs or cues around it. You just have like the words or something there like on Facebook as, this, uh, as these threats uh, were. And it's often hard to say what's going on. Is this guy being whimsical? Is this guy just being a jerk? Is this guy being a real threat? How likely is it harm? Whether, and you often just sort of look at this stuff, don't really know how fearful you should be. Do I need to look over my shoulder when I'm walking down the street? Or is it just someone venting? Something like that. So the, real, the central question was under the federal threat statute, what kind of mens rea, intent, if you will, or mental state did the government have to prove in order to convict someone of threatening someone else? That the person actually intended to put the person in fear? Uh, that the person was reckless, didn't actually have to intend it, but was just reckless in putting a person in fear? Or that they were just negligent in putting a person into fear? And the Supreme Court said that, we won the case, the Supreme Court said that negligence wouldn't do, which was a standard that the government had argued for, but they left it unclear what, act, whether, what level of uh, mind above that was necessary. The same term, we offered another case, which was a little fun, is a gun case called Henderson versus United States, where a client who was a border control officer uh, thought that he wasn't making quite enough money. You know, government never pays you enough. So he started dealing small amounts of marijuana on the side, which is a big no-no if you're working for the government, I can tell you that right now. Uh, so he was prosecuted by uh, the government for these very low-level uh, drug dealing offenses uh, and uh, he basically pled uh, guilty. Now one thing you may not know is that it is illegal for anyone who has a felony conviction. This technically was a felony conviction because he could have gotten over one year for it although he was out of prison after just a few months. Uh, the uh, you can't, a felon, convicted felon can't possess a gun. Right? You can imagine good reasons for that. So immediate, almost immediately after his conviction, Mr. Henderson handed his, gun, his family gun collection over to the FBI, thinking you know, this would keep him out of trouble, uh, which it did. But when he got out of prison, he didn't want the guns back because he re realized that would be illegal. 
but he wanted the government to give his guns to someone else who would then give him the money for them, right? Because he still owned the guns, although he didn't possess them, and the government couldn't take away his ownership interest in them. And the government said, no, 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 you can't do that because if we transfer them to someone else and you get the money from that person, at some point you will constructively possess them. Constructively possess. Does anyone know what that means? It means you don't really possess them, right? <laughs> you can tell that from uh, the word. And so we fought, this, we fought this up to the Supreme Court. We said, no, 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 this isn't possession. Possession is very different from ownership. He owns the guns, but he doesn't possess them. This is fundamental property law, and the government is trying to rewrite the statute. And it was a really wonderful case because it took our third years back to first-year criminal law principles and first-year property law principles. What does it mean to possess something? Pretty fundamental question, right, to any form of uh, property law. Uh, and there's a wonderful oral, oral argument. I was lucky enough to be able to do that one myself. And we spent you know, a long, long time sort of thinking through the strategy of the case and talking about fundamentals of property law. And I got up. You have a half hour to make your argument. I got up, made an argument. A few people asked me questions. No questions, really, after that. I talked for a little bit more, and I said, OK, I'm going to we're arguing against the government. You know, usually has really, a really good case. And I thought, well, God, if they're not asking me any questions, I'm just going to sit down. So I sat down after 14 minutes. Right? Uh, a friend of mine who was arguing for the government then got up, and it was wonderful, I mean, just for an opposing, party, uh, opposing attorney, because she walked right into a buzzsaw. The justices were just all over her and all that, so I sort of felt a little bit sorry for her. Uh, but our students were just beaming, right? Uh, so we went out for lunch. Uh, we went out for lunch afterwards, and uh, the client was happy. The students were so excited; it was really wonderful. We have two cases now. Uh, one, uh, we have, well, several cases now. I'll tell you about two of them. One, the court has granted, and will be argued probably in October, which is Lewis versus Epic Systems. We represent Mr. Lewis. The question, it seems technical, but is actually incredibly important, and probably will get a lot of press come the fall, is whether an employer can make an employee sign an agreement which takes away the employee's right to, uh, to pursue any collective remedy, meaning they, employees can band together, either in arbitration or in a court case, to go after the employer. Uh, for like back pay or something like that that they're owed. Uh, here what happened is that Mr. Lewis uh, worked as a so-called technical writer for the software uh, company. They basically work for healthcare organizations uh, and uh, realized uh, that he was being uh, mispaid and was eligible for overtime because he had been misclassified, uh, although he had been misclassified. So tried to get together with all the other employees in his group, the other technical writers, uh, to sue uh, Epic. And Epic said, no, 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 you can't do that because we made you sign an agreement saying that any remedy you sought for wages and stuff like that, you would have to pursue, uh, pursue individually, not with everyone else. Well, of course, if you have a lot of small stakes claims, it doesn't make sense for you to pursue them individually because often the cost of the attorney, the court proceedings, whatever, will be larger than the money you can get back or that you are due. It only makes sense to pursue things collectively. Uh, so uh, he, uh, Mr. Lewis said, well, maybe in some context that's okay, but there is this little thing called the National Labor Relations Act, which 
pr protects employees' right to pursue collective action. And collective suits are a form of collective action. Therefore, the National Labor Relations Act trumps that argument. And that's what we're going to be arguing about in the fall. Uh, the case, as you can imagine, is very important because many employers everywhere have been, over the last few years, have been trying to include these kinds of clauses in their contracts. Another case we have up, and this just is at the first stage, the court has granted Lewis, so we know that's going to be before it. Uh, we've asked the court to grant cert in another case called McGee versus Coca-Cola Enterprises, some form of Coca-Cola. Uh, and the question is a really wonderful one. It's whether a Coke machine is an establishment. Right? Now, what does that mean in practice? Uh, under the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Congress has said that certain businesses that are above a certain size have to accommodate people who have disabilities in their establishments. Right? So that's why you get sometimes the entrances to establishments have to have ramps to them and things like that. Question is, does a Coke machine actually have to accommodate people with certain kinds of disabilities. So it's a wonderfully interesting uh, case. No idea uh, what's going to happen to it. We're hoping that the court will take it and that then we will win. Uh, but it's early days still. Uh, the court looked all the papers uh, from the initial stage of the search stage are in. The court looked at the case and considered it a few weeks ago and said that it was important enough to ask the United States for its views on the case. So right now, it has asked the Solicitor General in the Department of Justice to submit a brief advising it whether it should hear the case or not. Once the Solicitor General does that, which will probably be some point over the summer, we will have two weeks to submit a brief responding to the Solicitor General's arguments. And then we'll go back to the court in late September. And the court will, at that point, decide whether or not to hear it. So as you can see, there's a lot of interesting and a lot of fun stuff that we do. Yeah? How do you choose the cases that you want to present? Well, we choose them. Uh, there's several criteria. The most important one is whether the court is likely to t be interested in it. So when the court is only taking 1% of the cases that people want to, you have to be very careful. And you don't want to spend a lot of time and energy writing up something that's hopeless. So, you know, the students are wasting their time. You're not really helping the client that much. So there's, you want to look for cases that you think the court might be interested in. And there are a few uh, ways of spotting those. The primary one is looking for cases where there's a so-called conflict or split, circuit split, meaning where the lower courts have actually gone different directions on a particular issue of federal law. Because the Supreme Court doesn't like, wants federal law to be uniform across the country. It doesn't want it to mean one thing in, say, Connecticut and another thing in Arizona, right? That seems obviously uh, unfair. So in cases, and there are lots of, you know, the, our court system is pretty decentralized, except for the Supreme Court. There isn't anything, any body that coordinates what all the lower courts do and decide. So it's often the case that you will find one lower court going one way and another lower court going another way. Often you will have, we've had cases where we've had uh, like 15 or 16 lower courts going, state supreme courts and courts, federal courts of appeals going one way and about the same number going the other way as well. So that's a good uh, 
a good indication. You also want to uh, look for cases where there isn't a so-called vehicle problem, where uh, the issue is presented in a clean way, and where if the court spends its time and resources deciding it, it would make an actual difference to the outcome in the case. So the court doesn't like to uh, decide abstract questions of law. And sometimes the facts matter to a case. Sometimes the facts can be so messy, the court's going to say, my lord, we don't want to take this, even though there is a real good issue there, because the facts are just so complex and messy that it's unclear whether we'd actually be able to uh, decide the interesting issue in a clear way that would help uh, people. So there's lots of stuff going on, but the primary uh, uh, criterion for us is that the court might take it. Uh, we also try to, uh, we choose our cases uh, for pedagogical reasons. The Henderson case, this gun case I was telling you about, wow, it was fascinating because it got our students back to first year fundamental property principles. What does it mean to possess something? The Henderson case, uh, the, uh, the Alonis case, the Facebook threat case, took, us back, uh, took everyone back to uh, pr first year principles of criminal law. What kind of mental state do you have to have when you did something bad for the government to legitimately punish you for it? I mean, does it make a difference that you really intended to do something versus just haphazardly were there when it happened, you know, versus it caused it to happen through only kind of negligence on your own part kind of thing? Uh, you know, fascinating. So when we can, we like to get cases that are good pedagogically. We'll try to make, take, put, make people confront really fundamental issues that they've encountered in their legal education and tie it all, everything, uh, together. Questions? Yeah? Hi, my name is Joe. Um, Hi, Joe. How many students in a given semester get well, they, uh, You have to sign up for the whole year uh, because the learning curve is so steep. Uh, it would be very difficult to you know, spend a lot of time getting people up to speed and then have to change the next semester. And sometimes cases will go from one semester to another, so we want the same people there to be able to work on them. So what we do is have anywhere, the number varies from year to year. It depends a little bit on the availability of instructors. Uh, and the instructors are sort of hard to come by because you want people who have had a good deal of Supreme Court experience and they can't do it every year. Uh, so we've, the size has been anywhere from like 12 people a year to 16 people a year. Uh, we like to work uh, with teams of students, about four people, uh, under one uh, director, uh, so that the students will get, be able to have an awful lot of responsibility in the case, will really be doing a significant amount of research and drafting, but will be subject to really close and helpful supervision. Third year, right. Has to be done in the third year because during the second year, people are still learning enough of the basics, especially the beginning of the second year, uh, that it wouldn't make sense for them to be doing, trying to learn these issues for the very first time in the context of like high level litigation. Yeah. Great students. Yeah. No, we're looking for students who are very bright, very energetic, and can write well. Uh, and people who are like really interested in this kind of stuff. I mean, you don't have to be a Supreme Court junkie, like going to SCOTUS blog every day to sort of see what the last thing is. You don't have to like be following uh, 
the notorious RBG every evening at home you know, to see what uh, she's up to. But a good level of interest. Uh, we want smart people and people who are pretty well prepared. So there are lots of things you can do in law school that are very, very, very important, but hardly ever matter before the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court tends not to do much state law, right? That's up to the states to do, and the state Supreme Courts decide most of those issues. So, and the state law is very important. Most property, most contract, most tort. You know, by fact, most of the things that you know, uh, are important to us every day concern state law, not federal law. So you could do, you could prepare yourself really well to be a great lawyer on those kinds of issues and miss out, just because there are only so many courses you're going to be able to take your first and second year, on the ones that are the issues that are really important to Supreme Court practice, like criminal procedure, federal courts, civil rights, uh, other things maybe like antitrust, bankruptcy, all the issues are the things that are federal. And so you could be the smartest person in the law school. You could be the best writer in the law school. You could be the most enthusiastic person in the law school. You could be following Ginsburg day and night, right? But you still wouldn't have the preparation for the kinds of cases that the Supreme Court takes. So that would be a problem. So we try to balance all those kinds of things. We want most people to have had some criminal procedure and some experience with federal courts, you know, what they're all about, administrative law, and maybe a few other things. And it's very helpful for maybe one person or two people in the clinic to have some background with more oddball corners of federal law, like bankruptcy, tax, antitrust, that kind of thing. Right? But there's no, there aren't any official requirements, really. Uh, because the, the, the things that are, would be absolutely necessary for everyone in the clinic to have are required of all law students, like constitutional law, that kind of thing. More questions? Come on, there must be something you want to know. Yeah, Joe. Sure. Uh, has there ever been a case, I'm sure there has, where you have a student that actually doesn't agree with the group's direction on the case? Well, there. Well, it depends upon what. I mean, there are people who don't agree with the, the position often, okay? Uh, that's fine. If you're going to be a lawyer, you presume, you know, your job is to actually work for the client, right? Uh, whether you actually believe in the, that should be the right view of what the country should be doing under its laws. You believe, you know, so you can disagree with the law and still work for a client. You can think that the law is up in the air, right? The question is really not decided, and still take your client's view about what it should be. In some cases, we don't tend to take cases that are so, like, ideological or anything like that, that someone would be politically opposed to a position or something like that. Uh, and there have been a few cases where we have said, you know, if anyone's uncomfortable working on this, uh, you don't have to, you know, there are other cases where the clinic's working on. You, you know, feel free to go over to one of the other teams or something like that. That really hasn't been much of a problem, uh, though. Um, but in most cases, but it's often good to have someone who disagrees, especially if they disagree. I'm sorry? Right. Well, no, but, that, but even when you're, like, thinking of how to write a brief, 
if you have someone, if you have disagreement about what the best legal strategy for your side is, that can be a really productive form of disagreement because someone will say, well, I don't think that that's the best way to argue it. If we argue this, then we have to argue this, and we have to argue this, and then we're going to get bitten by this, you know, kind of thing. So often having that kind of disagreement can be helpful because it sparks a discussion which makes your case stronger in the end. Now, there are some kinds of disagreements that are completely unhelpful. You can just say, well, you know, because of the way I you know, think the law should be, uh, I'm going to, uh, in this case is for the Supreme Court and has the power to set the law, uh, I'm going to try to sabotage it or something like that. No, 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 I mean, that's, that's bad. I mean, but it's bad from any kind of professional lawyer's role. Right position to do something like that, and if that's the position, you know, someone whatever, you know, where, whenever, finds him or herself in, they probably they definitely need to be working on a different case. Probably need to be finding a different kind of job. No, because the lawyer's role doesn't really lend itself to much of that. Yeah. Yes. There are. It's. Since this is a year-long commitment, there's no way it could be uh, a, a sole commitment. Uh, it would run up again, not only against probably what's the right thing to do, but tons of ABA rules, I'm sure. There are some other law schools that have <coughs> devoted clinics, meaning for the term, that's all you do. They tend to be ones that are organized on quarter systems, uh, though, like Stanford's, is where if you're in the clinic, that's all you do. But again, it's like would be a third of your yearly commitment. It's just all for one term. And for our law students, it's eight credits uh, over the third year. And that's not quite a third. It's a little bit less of that, but it's a significant part of your time. Yep. Well, the only time you wouldn't be on campus would be for the oral argument, okay. which is you know, one morning. Yeah, it's not a problem. Okay. Yeah, uh, we've never. I mean, it's possible that in a particular case, it might be actually necessary to take the team or part of the team to like the client, maybe a prisoner in some you know, federal penitentiary or something like that. That's never really happened. It's usually uh, important for the lawyers who handle the case at trial and then an initial appeal to do that sort of thing. And by the time it gets to the Supreme Court is not really necessary, possible. But then it, we'd you know, negotiate, work through, presumably the director would contact the teachers and things like that was absolutely necessary, explain what was going on and ask permission, that kind of thing. Okay, I've actually run over your time. So I thank you very much for your interest and for coming here. I hope you have a great time in Charlottesville.